0: You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Chapter 8, Esther chapter 8, actually we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 9, if you want to turn there to begin with, but uh, most of our time will be in chapter 8. It's interesting to me how God works and uh, just puts things together, Um, and uh, isn't that interesting that God had Andrew read the newsletter about a guy who's navigating chemo, and uh, just neat to see those kind of things and how God puts all that together. And allows him to be able to pray for that in a specific way. Pray for Brother Rust. Uh, He uh, is a friend of our ministry and uh, would have had a part in our starting our church and pastored at Liberty Baptist in Toledo for a number of years. And uh, pray for him. He's lost a lot of weight and is navigating some health challenges. But uh, pray, if you will, for that. Esther chapter 9, let's read just one verse. And as you learned this morning, don't judge the length of the sermon based on the length of the text. Some of you are saying, one verse, and you preach so long, and I think you meant that not as a compliment, so um, some of you. I love you, too. Uh, Esther chapter 9 <laughs> and verse number 1, and then we'll go back and look at chapter 8, but uh, this kind of sets the table tonight. I'm really excited about this study. been looking forward to this week specifically in our Esther series. Um, verse number 1 of chapter 9. Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them. And I love this phrase. You should probably underline this if you mark up your Bible. Though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. And so we're going to talk about tonight the idea of stepping up during turnaround seasons. God literally in one day can turn it totally in the opposite direction. And that's what we're about to pivot to in the story tonight. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the joy it is to meet today, tonight, again, around your word. Thank you for this good crowd, not just numerically, but spirit. Lord, just sense the, the anticipation of what you want to teach us and remind us of tonight. Thank you that the air conditioning on, Lord, that whether it's a little cool or warm to us right now, the weather's warming up outside. Thank you for your provision. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to meet and to just try to glean from your word things that can not only stir us, but change us. And I pray that you would convince us anew and afresh that, Lord, at any moment, um, you can turn everything around. And Lord, may that uh, encourage us to be found faithful in the moment we're in right now where everything seems to maybe be going the wrong direction at times. You are in control. Bless this study. Be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen you've ever been leaning back in a chair, your mama told you not to, and uh, whether it's an office chair, I'm thinking specifically like a kitchen chair, and you lean back beyond the point of no return, you know where I'm going with this, and you get that like bug-eyed look right before you fall backwards, and then, you know, your wife or your mom's lecturing you, I told you that's why you don't do that, the point of no return. I regularly hear in our ranks and in our culture today this negativity that basically, man, look at where things are going. This isn't going to end well. There's no going back. There's no uh, hope of a renewal in our future. Uh, And so a negativity creeps into our mindset. Now, what's the concern of that sentiment? Here it is. Far too often we fail to stand up because we no longer believe that God can turn things around again. Only those who stay standing really believe that. And here's what I'm trying to encourage us with as God's encouraging me tonight, it's worth it to stay faithful because God is gonna turn things around. And in that moment, we will be grateful that we stayed faithful when we were tempted, as we talked about even this morning, to think our lives and even our stand is of little if any significance. So this chapter now moves the narrative forward, chapter 8, that we're going to read in just a moment. It doesn't just record the fall of the enemy, it also uh, causes and records the rise of God's people. Isn't it interesting, the verse we just read, the Jews Jews had rule over them that hated them. They didn't just run away from them or escape from them, they actually now are in charge. And so we see a complete uh, pivot, if you will, in the narrative through God's sovereign intervention. So the question tonight is this, in a world filled with fatalism and quote-unquote irreversible trends, where can we boldly look for the restorative work of God in our day? Not just someday in the future, but this day, today, how can that affect us uh, on a regular basis? So let's talk about today two divinely orchestrated turnarounds that we see uh, in the chapter. Number one, for a few minutes, first of all, let's talk about the turnaround, number one, of power. We see a shift in the powers, all right? You guys help me out back there? Turnaround, there we go. Turnaround of power, number one. So we see a turnaround first, a shift, if you will, in the power uh, in those who held the power. Um, you ever been in a setting where you get the hiccups? Um, and it's not an ideal setting. I had just a few weeks ago, I don't know if you have fears of things that will happen to you. I'm not afraid of speaking in public. Some of you wish I was a little more so. My greatest fear is something happens that keeps me from being able to do what I need to do. And just a few weeks ago, I was in Alabama speaking at a wellness weekend, and I took a big drink of water right before I got up, and I felt the first hiccup coming. I'm like, what am I got? This is like literally 30 seconds before I get up. You ever heard a preacher try to preach through hiccups? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? It's funny how just little things can trip us up, and yet we think we have power. We think we can exert our own energy or wisdom or uh, abilities. Um, And many times in our lives, it feels like the wrong people are in power. Someday, there's coming a day where those who have been in power that we have been so bothered by and maybe have just really worried us about the future they will be viewed, I think, maybe this is not the right way of saying it, but to this idea, just a hiccup along the way of God's ultimate plan. The, the most long-tenured ruler on this planet is a blip, if at best, on the radar of God's rule and his reign uh, over all things. And so there is a turnaround of power that is coming. I don't know about you, I feel like often those in power, it's like, do you have to be corrupt before you can be put into power? Like, that just it feels like that, especially in the political realm, uh, if we're not careful. And someday, all of that's going to shift, and a God, we see, does it here in the chapter. All right, let's talk about a couple of things as it relates to this turnaround in power. Look at verse 1, back in chapter 8. On that day did King Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jews, enemy unto Esther, so the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told... Uh, what he was unto her. Number one, jot this down. Step up when God creates a vacuum of power. Step up when God creates a vacuum of power. And I have underlined in my Bible as well the first three words of chapter 8, on that day. It is possible today or tomorrow that God gives you greater influence than you have today. There's a vacuum of authority. There's a vacuum in the area of power. And here's my question, are we poised and ready to step into that vacuum when God uh, creates the opening? Um, And so we see that on this day, like on any given day, God moves aside those who were in power, and now he places into this position Mordecai and Esther. All right, what were some vacuums that were created? First, you see in verse 1, the king Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman the Jew's enemy. So we see, first of all, a vacuum in resources. Haman was a wealthy man. In fact, he paid uh, to put out the decree that would destroy the Jews. He, he put monies into the king's treasury. He was a uh, an affluent man, and all of his possessions In this culture, in this day, typically if a crime was committed, the king or those in authority would take all of the resources of that criminal and they would impound them. Um, They would assume responsibility for them. They would confiscate the lands and the assets. And so all of the property and possessions and even the people of his house, think about those who were left of his household, all of that now needed a leader. And so we see that King Ahasuerus gives these things unto Esther Uh, the queen. Now notice in verse one, it goes on to say, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And so this household uh, that was being overseen by Haman is now going to be shifted to Mordecai through the influence of Esther. It's interesting, the leading house of the land outside of the king's goes from being Haman's household to being Mordecai's household. Um. God can take all of the unrighteous mammon and all the assets and resources this world has and can easily use them or redirect them to accomplish his purposes. It always seems like we who are God's people are underfunded compared to a lot of other people and and agendas. Uh, Please don't think that that's the only thing that's directing and controlling the future. God is at any moment able to reassign and to use those uh, for his purpose uh, and plan. All right, verse 2, the king took off his ring. So first we see the household. There's the first vacuum, uh, this vacuum of resources. Notice now in verse 2, the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Number two, a vacuum in authority. This ring symbolized the authority of Haman, a ring that had been crafted. I don't know if Mordecai, this is just a random thought, but if Mordecai and Haman had the same ring size, But it was resized from that of Haman to now be put on the finger of Mordecai. And so this authority is transferred from Haman uh, to uh, Mordecai. He's appointed as overseer of all of Haman's properties and possessions. He's given the same position. In fact, go back to chapter 3 and verse 10 real quick, just so you appreciate what was given to Mordecai. Esther 3, look at verse 10. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman... So we see the king, ultimately this ring was the king's and he had given it to uh, Haman. He puts him over all the kingdom and that same ring now has come back to the king's finger and now it goes to Mordecai's finger. And so this authority being transferred from Haman to Mordecai. In the ultimate plot twist, Haman hanged on gallows made for Mordecai and Mordecai wore the ring made for Haman. Isn't that interesting? All of this transpires. This is not a lengthy book as far as how much time it covers. I know there was a gap of time we covered of several years, but all of this happens literally with just, within just a few hours. Things shift, things change. This vacuum is created, and it is filled by God's selection. What's the application for us as it relates to a vacuum of power, the fact that we worship and follow a God who can create these vacuums in a moment? Sadly, many of God's people, including probably, unfortunately, many of us in the room, we would not know what to do with the resources and authority if God would give us more of that in this present world. And here's how I know we wouldn't. Because we're not being faithful with what God has already given us. Does that convict you as it does me? It's easy, isn't it, to say, if I were this person, if I had this stuff, man, I'd make a difference. And yet, we're not being faithful with the little that God has already given us. The only way to be ready for God giving us more resources and authority, and He can do that for each of us in the room, is to practice and prepare for that by being faithful with what He's given us. Mordecai and Esther didn't wait till Esther chapter 8 to do the right thing. We see them kind of building to that, don't we? They had exhibited character. They had sat, they'd laid it all on the line. And in this moment now, they're able to steward the influence and the resources that God had given to them. I don't think we appreciate what has just been given to them at the beginning of this chapter. Unbelievable assets and authority and influence. And they used it for the benefit of the Jewish people. Many of us in the room, if God gave us what God gave to these two, it would ruin us. We would use it for ourselves. We'd use it to get toward all of our petty, trite kind of priorities instead of the bigger purpose for which God has given. So I just want to admonish us tonight, are we ready for that vacuum at work? Are we ready for that vacuum in the community, that vacuum in the church that maybe isn't removing some evil person, but God's giving to us a greater influence? Uh, What we do now, today, tomorrow, is positioning us for or not for uh, that opportunity when God sends it our way. When we're faithful in the little things. God tends to give us more uh, influence uh, for his glory. All right, now go to the end of the story, the end of chapter 8. Go back, if you will, to chapter 8, and let's skip. We'll come back to the interluding verses in a moment. Go down to verse 15. So what happens as a result of what's God's agenda? Why does he create this vacuum, and then he fills it with Esther and Mordecai? What's his purpose in that? Verse 15 (laughs) And Mordecai went up from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Number two, jot this down. Step up. When God generates an effect of power, so a vacuum of power, number two, an effect of power. Um, Brother Nick and I, Bland and I were just talking before church, he was following a uh, uh, I think it was an electric car that was losing some of its power and he was was slowing him down a bit this weekend. A friend of mine took this picture the other day of a Tesla. I'm not knocking electric cars for the record, okay? But this is at least case in point of someone refueling their car with a gas generator. (laughs) Does that just blow your mind, the dumb things, you know? And probably... I would submit to you that gas generator is less efficient than if they just drove a gas car, gas-powered car. But they're standing there thinking we're saving the environment as they're running their generator to, you know, power up their car. Um, power. Um, God has a purpose in giving to us power. He has a, a directive in it. It's not just some random thing that we receive. Uh, there is a purpose. Key thought tonight. And this is me as a younger leader, as a pastor trying to figure this out myself. God gives us greater influence and resources for a purpose. Prosperity gospel is, it's for us. It's for me to roll around in some, not maybe an EV, you know, electric vehicle, maybe it is, but to, to use those things for myself. If God gives you greater authority and influence or resource, it is to serve at his behest is to do his will and to do uh, his purpose. And so we see Mordecai being very careful to steward this well, and as a result, the effect or the impact of him being in charge versus Haman accomplishes what God uh, had intended. I believe this with all of my heart. We as leaders, we are put in leadership not for our own uh, aggrandization or uh, increase of whatever, We are giving greater influence to serve more people, to serve them, to impact them. Um, And so, if we want to see God use us in this area of greater power and influence, we need to do it for the benefit of God's purpose, and that is to serve others. All right, notice two ways in which these effects work out. First of all, number one, we just read verse 15 the effect of joy. There's great joy in the city of Shushan and throughout the whole the whole Persian empire, because Haman's gone, Mordecai's in his place. There is joy as a result of this shift in power. Mordecai wears the clothes of now his royal position, royal garments. You see a crown, you see a purple linen robe, blue and white were the Persian colors of royalty. Um, And so you see him leaving. He leaves what he'd been wearing just a few chapters before, what? Sackcloth. And now he's wearing, talk about a turnaround, he's now wearing these robes of splendor. Psalm 30 and verse 11, the psalmist says, Thou hast turned uh, for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. And I think that's what we see embodied in narrative form in the story tonight, the effect of mourning being turned into gladness. All right, notice the end of verse 15, the city rejoiced and was glad. Verse 16, the Jews had light, I love this, just these words of description, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, we'll talk more about that decree in just a moment, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. On that day is how the chapter begins it ends with, it was a good day, it was a really, really good day. Day. And so previously under Haman's edict and under his rule, it says that Shushan or Susa had been bewildered back in chapter three and verse 15. And now we see because of this second edict there is joyous celebration. In fact, just to contrast it, go back to chapter 4 and verse 3. So this is before Haman is removed and Mordecai fills his place, just to show you the shift in the narrative, how quickly things change. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. And in every province whithersoever the king's commandment, his decree came. So the same exact parallel thought or idea. There was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And here we are just a few chapters later. Everything is shifted. Everything has turned. Now the word a good day, the words a good day there in chapter 8, is, the parallel would be Holiday. This actually was a holiday. It was a good day. It was a day of celebration as they anticipated God's deliverance uh, through what He was about to do. Do you know there's coming days where we will actually celebrate even the struggles and the challenges and the risks because God has turned all of it to His good for our good and His glory? Um, And so we can anticipate that. We can let that joy fill our hearts uh, even this evening. All right, then it's interesting. Notice the very end of verse 17. So it talks primarily about the Jews, but then this little thing tucked or tagged on the end of the chapter, and many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Number two, the effect of evangelism, so the effect of joy when power shifted. Number two, the effect of evangelism. Uh, Braxton came up to me more before church tonight, and he wanted to talk to me about swimming like he needs to take swimming lessons. I don't know why he thinks I should be the one he talks to. I have two theories on that, Braxton. One would be that I baptize now and then, so of course I'm an expert on all water-related activities. Um, the other one would be he's trying to get an ally to convince his parents that he needs swimming lessons. So that might be the, the ulterior motive there. Um, but evangelizing, trying to recruit people to your cause. Can I tell you, that God is more than able to draw men to himself, right? He's able to turn circumstances that we feel like are the worst thing for us, listen to me, that are also the best way to reach the lost. Would these people at the end of chapter 8 turn to Jehovah God if all of this had not happened? And I think one of the things we're going to see in hindsight, the further we work toward God's ultimate plan and purpose, is we're going to look back and see how God used those difficult seasons in our lives, in our culture. He was working His will to draw men to Himself through those circumstances. And here's my challenge to us. Stop being victims. Instead, be evangelists. View the current context. Many of you said... I have random conversations with people now where they would have used to just blow by me, but the world's burning and things are in chaos. They're wondering, they're worrying, they're asking, they're seeking. And if we're not careful, we have our head down complaining and bemoaning about what we're stuck with and the world's looking for our God. Uh, And so we see here through these circumstances, all the ups and downs, God uses it to draw men to himself. In fact, I think what's happening is these people see that these aren't random circumstances. God is at work and they can see his hand in all of these so-called circumstances or random things that Jehovah God is working on behalf of his people. And so all that to say, this evangelism, this moving of God and those who are watching started with two people who were willing to stand for God when no one else was. Who could be saved if we would step up? Who could be saved if we would stay standing faithfully for the Lord? Even when it doesn't feel like it works and it's not effective and pragmatically, maybe we should move on. Maybe we be faithful to stay where God has led us. And maybe this question tonight, could our ineffectiveness with evangelism be less about the threats of the world and more about the timidity of God's people? We talk about the threats and the inconvenience. It's so hard to win the world and reach the world in our day. Um, I think it's not the threats of the world. It is the timidity often of God's people, starting with yours truly. And so the compelling to others of light, gladness, joy, and honor, all that we see that is embodied in God's people here in the chapter is not the default result of God's people no matter what we do. It's the result of standing before the deliverance comes, staying faithful even when we can't see where it's going to come from. That's what leads to the light, the gladness, the joy, the honor, and the influence. And so most of us, I think tonight, if we're honest, we're kind of in the middle of the story. We're already in Christ. We already have the promise of eternity, but it's not fully here yet. What do we do while we're in the middle of the story? I think our responsibility is to trust God and not be thrown off by the prosperity of the wicked or those who currently hold all of the power. And remember that God is always in control. There's no individual, there's no organization, there's no society, there's no country that's beyond His influence, that's beyond the scope of His authority and His power. Um, you could write down the verse, it's, it's a verse that often gives me comfort. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. No one in our world today with all the power they think they have is doing anything without his control and his directive. So may we be faithful to stand. If I'm going to stand with somebody, I think I want to stand with the one who ultimately is in charge. Because someday that will be apparent to all, whether it feels or looks like it right now, may that give us and stiffen our spine where needed to stand for him until he comes. All right, now go back to verse 3, and let's talk about now what leads to the joy and gladness when the power shift occurs. And I love um, this chapter, often a chapter we forget as we kind of look at an overview of the book. Look at verse 3. So we see the assets and the power removed from Haman's house and given to Esther and Mordecai. Verse 3, and Esther spake yet again before the king, fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against uh, the, the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther rose and stood before the king. Number two, there was a turnaround not only of power, but of publication, a turnaround of publication. Vance Havner, the other day I read a statement from him from years ago. He said this, Where there are mountains, there must be valleys. But there never was a winter that was not followed by spring. Never a winter. We're right in that season, finally. It's been proven again. There's never been a winter that was not followed by spring. And I just want to encourage you, no matter what man has to say and what they publish and propagate, there's an end to the story that cannot be changed. And so in the midst of all the world decrees and even publishes around the world, I think, here's my thought, the world thinks that they tell enough people then it's going to be true. (laughs) If we can just convince everybody that this has happened, and this is the interpretation of what's happened, that somehow they can change the end of the story, and yet God is able to flip the script. God is able to turn around anything the world publishes against him. All right, a couple things about that. Number one, step up when God burdens us with unresolved publication. Step up when God burdens us, this is a key point tonight, with unresolved publication. In one sense, it's amazing what God has done, but Esther's people are not out of the woods yet. You remember over and over it said, the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. What is the law of the land? What has been published, right? That, that the Jews are going to be victimized, they're going to be annihilated. Uh, and so Esther knows that more has to be done in order for her people to fight back or to stand up against what has been decreed. There are two aspects of this unresolved issues. Number one, unresolved mischief. Um, And it uses that word there in verse 3, besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite. So there was unresolved mischief or evil intended toward uh, God's people. We tend to only focus on Esther's first trip into the palace without an invitation. Do you know this one is just as crucial as the first one? She again is risking her life to get this over the finish line, to deal with that which is still unresolved uh, in relation to her people. And once again, the king extends the scepter of mercy and grace to uh, his beloved queen. And so we see her willing to stand again key point tonight standing for God until the full turnaround is always going to involve more than one moment of standing and risking it all I think a lot of us in the room have stood once or now and then erratically we stand but it's standing and standing and standing and faithfully doing it over and over and over again. That's that's what's going to lead to the turnaround in your life. Maybe it's a lost loved one you have or some tension relationally you have in your extended family or some other issue that you're navigating and God wants to work, but he's looking for repetitive faithfulness, consistent faithfulness uh, in our lives. Um, You may want to write this down. Turnarounds from God always require great tenacity on our part. Rarely do turnarounds happen because one time I prayed, or one time I pushed back or one time I didn't back down. It's tenacity that leads to the turnaround. And I think many times we're aborting, if you will, or preempting what God could do uh, if we would be more tenacious for the Lord. I remember reading a a book on Margaret Thatcher and she made a statement. Maybe you've heard this, this quote. It's often attributed to her. She said this as the former prime minister of the UK. She said, you may have to fight a battle more than once to win it, right? Might have to fight it more than once to win it. And I think that's often where we we, we do the initial effort or we make the token, whatever, but we're not sticking with it long enough uh, to see that battle won. And So Esther here exhibits great tenacity in returning to the king again uh, to deal with what has been uh, unresolved. All right, verse 5. And said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, if the things seem right before the king, and if I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadotha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Number two, jot this down, unresolved vision. Unresolved vision. In verse... 3, we see the gist of her plea. In verses uh, 5 and 6, we see the specific words of her plea. And did you notice that she uses eyes and see several times? Uh, In verse number 5, she's talking about the king's eyes. Um, And then in verse 6, notice she says, for how can I endure to see the evil? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? She saw a better way. She saw a, a delivered way. She had a vision. Uh, for where she desired for this to go. And so because of that, she was willing to step up again for that which was unresolved. Esther here is desperately concerned for the fate of her people and willing to put it all on the line again to appeal directly to uh, the king. Um, I joked about it a little bit this morning, but the idea of losing certain physical or mental capacities or abilities you had when you were younger I noticed nowhere is that more true than my lower body. Like my legs, a week or so ago, Nick Hinkle, who is like the fit specimen of the century as it relates to basketball, I was just basically shoving him, fouling him, just bear hugging him, trying to keep him from scoring. We played a few weekends or weeks ago at Rod Belcher's house. And, um, but my lower body, like I can't, I just, there's where my body should be and these legs will not get me there as fast <laughs> as the gazelle over here named Nick, okay? Um and, and I just my legs especially, I noticed that more than anywhere else. Um the other day I heard uh, a guy was talking to his trainer, and his trainer said to him, He said, Here was the question. I, I assume they were starting tra- physical training. He said, What kind of squats are you accustomed to doing? Have you heard this one? What kind of squats are you accustomed to doing? To which this guy responded, diddly. <laughs> diddly squats. Those are the ones that me, I, my body knows how to do those. Diddly squats. Um, I think as it relates to the vision of God, many times we can see a better way, but we're not doing, we're doing diddly about it. We're not putting in the effort that's needed. We're not being faithful for the long haul to that which God has called us to. Can you see a different outcome than, quote, the inevitable outcome? Esther saw a different ending to the story. I hear in our day a lot of fatalism. It's over. The family's done. Christianity is on the decline. I hear all kinds of the negative instead of having a vision. God can still see our family be raised the right way and our church can be what it should be and new churches can be started and missionaries can be mobilized. Where's a fresh vision that motivates us to stand? Here's here's what I see. We stand, but we're standing only in reaction to the negative. Esther here sees a positive way forward. She sees a better future for her people, and so she's willing uh, to stay faithful to the Lord. And so an unresolved vision. What's in your craw, if you will, tonight that you're just not okay with? In your family, in our community, in our world? And what are you doing to stand for that? Um, what's, a, what's a demographic? What, what's, what's somebody or some type of person or I don't know, something that's not right? Uh, where's the vision Uh, to be faithful to stand. Esther was not okay with how things were going to play out. And because of that, she was willing uh, to stand. Proverbs 29, 18 says this, where there's no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law happy is he. Where there's no vision, that's the idea, it's a connection to God's word, the prophetic vision, the vision that God's word gives us, where there is none of that, the people perish. And Esther was not going to let that happen on her watch. She was next to the king for a reason. Mordecai had the influence he had for a reason. And she was going to do her part to resist that perishing with a fresh vision of what God had revealed to her. So often, I think our guilty thing is we get the giant threat on its heels and then we back off. Esther didn't do that. She leaned in. Once she got Haman on the, the run and once she got uh, the enemies on the defensive She leaned forward instead of backing off. What is the unresolved issue in your sphere of influence that could be a huge turnaround if you and I would just be completely faithful to the Lord and what he has assigned to us? Where's our vision to see that which is unresolved resolved? All right, go to verse 7. Let's spend a few minutes here in these last few verses. Verse 7, then King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen, so she beseeches him, she lays out her case before him, the queen of Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> excuse me, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, so he reviews what he's done already. And him they have hanged upon the gallows because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal with the king's ring, for the writing which is written the king's name and seal with the king's ring uh, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan. Uh, on the 6th and 20th day, I'm sorry, on the three and 20th day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded, unto uh, the Jews, and to the lieutenants, and the deputies, and rulers of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, 127 provinces. Again, we cannot appreciate how much power Mordecai possesses here. Uh, according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing, and according to their language." Number two, step up when God blesses with amended publication. So unresolved publication, that would be of Haman and his source. Number two, step up when God blesses with amended publication. Heard the other day, someone tongue-in-cheek said this, my desire to be well-informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. I want to be well-informed, but I also, man, the more I know, the less uh, I'm prone to be sane. And I think sometimes as it relates to that which is published in our day, we know a lot of things about a lot of things, but do we know what God's writing, what God's fulfilling in His Word? Are we, in His Word, seeing what His Word is changing and transforming and what we see being written in the text uh, even this evening? Um, I mentioned this at the beginning of our series. If you can go back, I'm going to pretend you remember every profound thought I've shared over these last number of Sunday nights. Do you remember me talking about how God redeemed a lot of things in this story? What we're about to see is what I alluded to, the very publication arm of this sprawling, basically the world power of its day, its publication arm that had been used to communicate such evil tidings is now being reached out and redeemed by God to spread good news. And so God here takes what I think, and we see this in our day, don't we? Man, you know, all the news outlets and social media, and we go through all these things. You know, what I'm trying to do in my little part is I'm trying to use those things where I can to get the message of the gospel out. I'm not getting into political debates and debates about your little thing or my little thing. I'm trying to use anything I can to get the gospel to people. Um, Just as a way of update or praise, last Friday night for our Good Friday service, remember I had you guys write the things on your car? We had two guys here that came because they saw that invite on the back of one of your cars. One of you was driving properly, okay? It was an asset to our ministry. But all those things, it can be redeemed, folks. We're always bemoaning all the stuff the world's saying and doing, and we're not getting the message of the gospel out. And I just find it fascinating that the very apparatus that had probably so overwhelmed the Jews now floods their soul and brings to them in their own language tidings of great joy. Um, God can do a turnaround with anything. So don't make the thing the evil thing. Often that very thing God uh, can also use. All right, a couple things about that as we finish. First, you see an amended delegation in verses uh, 7 to 10. Earlier, the king had delegated authority to Haman. Now he delegates the authority to Mordecai. He gives to him the power of the pen. He allows him to communicate in the king's name and with the king's pen. He has all of that authority in his communication. It's interesting in verse number 9, it says they were called at the time in the third month. So if you notice in chapter 9, it begins with now in the 12th month. So there are nine months. This gives the Jews time to prepare, uh, even the timing of this. And so this delegation of authority that gives time for the message to get there, for the Jews and everyone to adjust to that message. And so he, he disperses this message at great haste. Uh, verse 10 talks about how they get the message out. Mordecai writes it in the king Ahasuerus' name, seals it with the king's ring. They're on that wax seal. And sent letters by post on horseback, riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries. And dromedaries are just saddle-worthy uh, horses. They're, they're fastest, the, the fleetest, if you will. They, they get the message out as quickly as possible. Uh, through this amended delegation. The power now of the king rests at the fingertips of Mordecai. Before the king had delegated his pen name and ring to Haman to dispense out the evil message, now he does the same with Mordecai. Through the same publication means the message of joy goes out. All right, let's end with verses 11 to 14. We see the king, here's now the message, wherein the king's granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together, notice this, and to stand, I would underline that word, to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women. All right, so this wasn't just the men could stand up. Don't you love that? Okay, Junior, king said, you and your mama, you guys grab something and let's all stand. You know, I, I, I'm just filling in the gaps there. But they all, if you're a Jew, you can stand up. I love that uh, in verse 11. And to take the spoil of them for prey. So whatever assets they have, those who attack you. Upon one day in all the province of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the post that rode upon the mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan, uh, the palace. Lastly, an amended conclusion. An amended conclusion. Basically what the king's publication said is, the story is going to turn out differently. It's not going to end the way Haman intended. It's not going to end the way you feared it would end. There is going to be a different conclusion been laying some floor tile, ceramic tile, the last week or so, and when you're laying ceramic tile, you put down cement board, you lay some mastic, you put the tile down, you fill it with grout, but there's a point when you're working with tile of no return. Like once it sets up to a certain point, I think you remember I told you a story about I couldn't get the the grout off, I let it dry too long, and so I'm panicking trying to get that off, large project I was working on. But the tile, once it's there and everything's been done, you're not changing it. You're tearing it out, if anything. Don't you love that God, no matter how many tiles have been put in place, no matter how much, well, that's the way it's going to be, God at any minute can amend it. Let's just start over. Let's redo that. He's able to adjust and tweak in ways that often we fail to give him credit, the amended conclusion. And so here we see the contents of the message, And it gives to the Jews hope that there is a different end. I'll give you just a preview of chapter 9. We'll talk about it more next time. But on the day the Jews were destined to die, they actually deal a blow to the anti-Semitic vibe in the kingdom like no other. In fact, chapter 9 says they killed 75,000 people, their enemies. And so what God does is he flushes out the enemies of his people and defeats them on the very day they thought they were going to defeat God's people. Isn't that interesting? It was redeemed. It was used by God in a tremendous way. And so the conclusion uh, doesn't have to be what the world says it will be. The conclusion will be what God says it will be. And may that undergird us with a, a stiffness of spine and a willingness to stand for God, the one who controls the conclusion of the story. The world and its leaders don't know how to unravel the mess that often they get themselves into, but our God does. Where we are ill-prepared to change the status quo, uh, where uh, are we ill-prepared to change the status quo in a way that gives God room to redeem His people and His plan through us? I, listen to me, I'm not OK with the status quo, are you? And though I'm not OK with the status quo with all the brokenness and fallenness in our world, I still need to stand. Because someday God's going to bring this all to conclusion. Uh, and so may that help us tonight where uh, needed. Uh, Luke 19. Let's go there and we'll finish. I just want you to see one little phrase found in Luke 19, because I think sometimes we this hold on till Jesus comes mindset creeps into our hearts. I'm just going to hunker down with my Bible and the Holy Spirit and I'm just going to isolate from this crazy world. Nothing could be further from God's will for our lives. We're to Uh, possess and to own the space that God has given us in human history. And Luke 19 alludes to this in several ways, but just one I draw to your attention tonight. Look at Luke 19 in verse 13. Christ uses this parable um, to illustrate his kingdom. And I want you to notice a little phrase or command that he gives in verse 13. He called his ten servants And delivered unto them ten pounds, and said unto them, notice this, Occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear occupy? The tendency is for that to have a bit of a passive coloring. I'm occupying this chair. And some of you aren't sitting as far front as you probably should be if you were right with God, but you're occupying the chair you're in tonight, okay? especially you back row people. I know you have all kinds of medical conditions and parental reasons for what you're doing, okay? Um, But occupying a space. When I hear occupy, I think of it in a passive sense. Where I'm at, air can't be, or someone else can't be. I'm occupying this space. The word occupy that's used here in Luke 19 has the idea to be occupied by something, by a mission or a purpose. And specifically here, this word often was used to carry on business, as a banker or a trader. So where Christ says, occupy till I come, when they heard that word, that's what they thought of. It wasn't someone just stagnant or you know in a stasis, in, a, in a, a, a state of unmovement or doing something. Occupy was being busy about the master's mission and purpose. Occupy till he comes. And I would like to challenge us with that tonight. The end, we already know the end of the story ultimately, don't we? Let's not forget that. But we have a part in that. We have a part in seeing his kingdom worked out and and move forward through our own parts of surrender and standing and conviction, all those things that go with that. And so could a full turnaround occur in areas that we've been waiting on God if we would just be willing to stay faithful, stay busy for him? All right, I want to introduce you to a word tonight. I would never heard this word before our study tonight. Uh, peripety, is the word. And I was reading through a book that was talking about the idea of how God can, in a moment, redirect the storyline. The word peripety just means a shift in the narrative. A big word if you're looking for a word besides turnaround or something else, a a shift in the narrative. But the author I was reading said this, The Bible invites us to believe in coming peripety. And he gave a few. I just wanted to read these for you very quickly. Abraham and Sarah were old and barren one day, and then saucer-eyed and pregnant the next, peripity. Joseph went to sleep one night as an Egyptian prisoner. He went to sleep the next night as the Egyptian prime minister, Peripede. The Red Sea was uncrossable one minute and a pathway the next, peripety. Joshua marched seven times around the city of Jericho. After the sixth circle, the walls were still standing. After the seventh, they were rubble, Peripity. Goliath defied the Israelites for 40 days, but then David loaded a peripety in his sling and let it fly. Down went the giant. The 450 prophets of Baal mocked Jehovah, but then Elijah prayed and a fire-filled peripety fell from heaven. Lastly, the lions wanted to eat Daniel one moment, but they couldn't open their mouths the next. Their jaws were wired shut by divine peripity. One moment, everything's bad, everything's going south, and the next... Everything changes. And those that are ready for that moment when everything shifts are those who stood and stayed faithful before it happened. I think we're there tonight. I, Jesus could have come back before I get done with this sermon tonight. If Jesus could, get, could come back before we enter Monday or this week. Our, our job is not to worry about when and how. Our job is who am I to be, where am I to stay faithful, and just stand for him as we see Esther and Mordecai uh, modeling so well. And so don't let, God con- don't let the world or others convince you that God can't flip the script. There's nothing beyond uh, his intervention. And what is the ultimate evidence of peripety? It's Jesus in the tomb. A corpse one moment, Lord, save your king the next. And God can shift any narrative, including where you feel stuck tonight and where I do. And the way we evidence faith is not by naming and claiming it, it's just staying faithful. A lot of our lack of faithfulness is we've given up on God. We don't believe He still can move and work. And I challenge you tonight, evidence your faith and belief in a God who is sovereign by just stepping up and standing up and staying faithful uh, in the week that He gives to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight.